Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Lee with Syracuse University and is a senior fellow of the Peterson Institute. And she is more than wired in on trade. Mary, with all of the hysterics right now on trade, what do we need to know about the process forward the next three days? Well, we have a lot to watch for over the next three days. Tom, you're right. It's very interesting times we're living in right now. Uh, I think that um, we'll see some probably stability in the today because we need to uh, recognize that Liu He, who is uh, President Xi Jinping's main negotiator, is on his way to the U.S., um, and, or at least that's our, our belief, and that means that negotiations continue. So there's still uh, quite a bit of hope that we'll get a deal here between the United States and China and that we can uh, at least put off for a while the increase in tariffs that President Trump threatened over the weekend. What is a deal come Saturday morning? I mean, is it a handshake? Is it a photo op? Is it we're going to talk further? I mean, define deal. Well, there will be an agreement by both sides, even though President Trump hates the term. It'll be a sense of MOU or Memorandum of Understanding. But there will be uh, some lock-in on on uh, purchases for sure and some changes to how how china operates particularly with respect to uh, investment from the united states so we will see a deal will it solve all the problems clearly not the can is going to be kicked down the road it has to be the agenda the u.s laid out was too ambitious and too in a sense ambiguous to be Mm -hmm. dealt with within the short period of time that the u.s and china have been negotiating the president tweets, we are thrilled to have Mary Lovely with us to translate. She's with the Peterson Institute. The reason for the China pullback and attempted renegotiation of the trade deal is the sincere, all caps, hope that they will be able to, quote, negotiate, unquote, with Joe Biden or one of the very weak Democrats and thereby continue to rip off the United States $500 billion a year for years to come. Guess what? That's not going to happen. China has just informed us that they, Vice Premier, are now coming to the U.S. to make a deal. We'll see. But I am very happy with over $100 billion a year in tariffs filling U.S. coffers. Great for U.S., not good for China. Mary, I don't want to go into Elizabethan hysterics here, but the last <laughs> sentence of that tweet, I am very happy with over $100 billion a year in tariffs filling U.S. coffers. I get that. Customs and incoming money goes up. Where does that money come from? Oh, great question. Uh, you know, there's two very, very good academic studies that were just done looking at the price increases following the tariffs, and the answer is U.S. consumers and businesses are paying these tariffs. That is a tax on U.S. businesses and U.S. consumers. Uh, no matter how many times the president likes it, you know, the numbers the numbers are plain. We are seeing price increases as a result. Uh, the San Francisco Fed estimates that it's put about 0.1 percentage points on the CPI. Now, that's not a lot, 
but if the president goes along with what he's threatened, it will raise the CPI by half a percentage point, which is quite a bit. More importantly, it raises the cost of investment by about one full percentage point. So we look at what businesses need to continue to be productive and grow jobs in the United States, and we see that this is a job killer. Okay, it's a job killer. I saw somebody trot out 292 on marginal tariffs. This is really important, folks, and I'm going to go mathy here on you. You go from no tariffs, zero, to two, three, five, to ten, and the president wants to go 10 to 25-ish or something like that. Yes. The effect of that on our listeners is nonlinear, isn't it? The more and bigger the tariffs get, the worser the second derivative we sort of get, don't we, Mary? Yes, it is proportional to the square of the tax, which means there we go. <laughs> the burden on on Americans will get larger. And of course, you know, the uncertainty is taking its toll. Pretty soon, businesses will rearrange supply chains, which, of course, I think this administration applauds. What they don't tell you is the jobs are not coming back to the United States. They're already starting to move to other parts of East Asia. And in fact, if the tariffs remain, we've already seen U.S. businessmen say, hey, I love this country, I've invested in this country, but I can't take 25% uh, taxes on my inputs. It just doesn't make sense to me. I can't sell. One more question before we dash. Mary Lovely, if the president puts in some new level of higher tariffs, where are we bombing ourselves back to? Are, Are we back before the romantic names of the past, Uruguay? Gat and all the other famous trade meetings. Are, are we back 10 years? Are we back to World War II? Are we back to Smith and Ricardo? How far back are we on non-free trade? Well, vis-a-vis China, we're back way back before the Uruguay round because considering all of the things, all of the various types of tariffs we have on China, including things that predate this latest round, over 50% of U.S. imports from China are already subject to special U.S. duties. So these are levels of tariffs that basically in the modern era we've never seen before. Okay, Mary Lovely, what a clinic. Thank you so much. And folks, we will have out on podcast uh, Dr. Lovely of Syracuse and the Peterson Institute. That was exceptionally important and valuable summary there of where we are heading. Talks. Keeping investors worldwide very much on edge. J.P. Morgan Chief Executive Officer Jamie Dimon sounding a note of optimism, even after the rising specter of tariffs has roiled global markets. Whatever the odds were before, like I think it's still 80% they'll get it done. The odds of something bad happening is now doubled. Whatever you thought they were, if it was 2% or 5%, 10%, it's probably doubled. And that's why the markets are reacting to it. Here in New York City to discuss, I'm pleased to say, is David Rosenberg, Gluskin Chef, Chief Economist and Strategist, alongside Priya Misra, TD Securities Head of Global Interest Rate Strategy. Guys, good morning to you both. Great to have you with us. Priya, what are your telling clients at the moment about what is about to happen Thursday, Friday? Sure. So clearly the market's extremely nervous around uh, this potential of not having a deal. Our view is that, you know, tariffs are likely to go up on Friday, but both sides are going to get a little annoyed. They're going to step away and then they're going to come back and negotiate. I really don't think either side wants the self-inflicted uh, trade war here. So our view is that it's going to be this sort of can kick 
for another few months. So they're going to continue to talk. I actually think that a lot of this is politically motivated. I think going into the 2020 election, we're still going to be negotiating because it's very hard to get this deal. We need enforcement mechanisms. We need some sort of monitoring mechanisms. You know, there's a risk of China losing its sovereignty. These are all pretty big issues. And I think structurally, they're pretty far apart. So we don't really expect a deal. Um, uh, but but we don't expect this trade war either. And, and, and I think the market's at least going to be comforted that the worst case scenario doesn't happen here. David, your thoughts? Well, I think that we've hit a very um, interesting point here in this uh, chess match. Uh, The U.S. administration seems to think that uh, because the stock market recently hit a new high, uh, they're obviously believers uh, in this 3.6% unemployment rate and the non-farm payroll report that came out, uh, that the U.S. economy is in fine shape, the stock market is in fine shape, and therefore uh, the U.S. um, has the upper hand. Uh, uh, then you move to the Chinese part, and um, I think it was uh, fortuitous on their part to start uh, easing monetary and fiscal policy, provide uh, what the markets call data stability, so at least uh, the Chinese economy has stopped deteriorating, so they think they have the upper hand. Um, so, look, we'll see how this plays out. Uh, I'm not recommending taking any trading positions. There's just too much uncertainty. It can go either way. Um, but um, I think really that's where we've come to is that both sides sort of feel a, a little emboldened right now. Uh, to push the other side around um, just based on how their economies have been doing on the surface. It looks like the outcomes, the potential outcomes are incredibly binary. Tom, we had a little bit more colour overnight. Reuters reporting the following. I think the story is really interesting. The diplomatic cable from Beijing arrived in Washington late on Friday with systematic edits to a nearly 150-page draft agreement that would blow up months of negotiations between the world's two largest economies. This is according to three U.S. government sources and three private sector sources briefed on the talks. The document riddled with reversals by China. The real surprise, as we get more colour on all of this, is that it took two days for the president to blow up, that he only blew up on Sunday because we learned of this on Friday. He has some other distractions, probably knowing what the New York Times was going to do with his 15 years of taxes from decades ago. But what's important here, and Meredith Sumter, thank you of Eurasia Group for joining us yesterday for what I thought was great conversation, is here we are. Priya, what, where is the yield now? 2.42%. How do you trade, negotiation, adjust that yield? It's very hard. Uh, as you said, you know, there are significant binary risks here. I think the market is saying, well, there's some probability of all of this breaking down yeah. and we actually go into a trade war. So I think that's why the market's pricing in these Fed eases in the near term. We've got almost an entire well, Fed ease priced for this year. You know, I should point out, as usual, Rosenberg walks in the studio and futures go negative 12 down to negative 19. And the curve's about to invert <laughs> again, too, two, on the three-month tenure. Yeah, yeah, two big <laughs> figures to 21 on the VIX. Is, well, David, is this like September or December or whatever the swoon was, February of 18 months ago? Is there a different character and color to it this time? Well, look, uh, I, I'm not going to compare it to uh, going into the fourth quarter where uh, it was also coupled with uh, you know, a lack of liquidity in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the Fed was in full-blown tightening mode. So it's not. It, I wouldn't draw that comparison. But here's what I'll say. Uh, there is way too much risk in the market right now, uh, from my perspective. Uh, we're in a heightened period of, uh, I would say, not just political uncertainty. Uh, I would say there's more economic uncertainty than meets the eye. I think a lot of people okay. are paying too much attention to the headlines. Wait, wait, They're wait, not looking David, under David, the hood at the economy. David, excuse yeah. me. You're in a meeting with your clients. Excuse me. They're saying GDP is 3.2%. Discuss. 
Yeah, I'm going to say that basically, if you look at the underlying domestic demand components of the economy, so you strip out, I mean, negative imports actually contributes to GDP. We had a huge inventory build, uh, which is not sustainable. In fact, I would it's, say that. It's sub two percent. Well, what I'm going to say is basically, you got to look beneath the veneer. Uh, you know, if you take a look at inventories in yeah. manufacturing, wholesale, and retail, the inventory to sales ratio in the United States today is higher than it was in December 2007 when the recession was starting. We have so yeah. A lot of the production that supported GDP, Tom, went right. into inventories, and that has to be worked off. By the way, that was the message in the isms uh, in April. Okay. So so my sense is that when you look at the demand guts of the economy, stall speed, barely more than yeah. 1%. That's the okay. underlying trend. Priya-ism over here wants to talk as well about TG Securities. You don't agree respectfully with Mr. Rosenberg. I don't because I see a pretty big difference from late last year. I think late last year was all about this Fed making a policy mistake. They were letting the balance sheet run off, they said, essentially for forever, they were going to hike above neutral. I think it's it's useful to sort of think of Fed policy as being either about the outlook or about the reaction function. There's been a dramatic shift in that reaction f- uh, function from late last year up until now. Now the Fed's telling us we're close to neutral, we're kind of nervous about inflation, we don't need to hike anymore. Um, and we've... Uh, uh, They've actually announced the end of balance sheet runoff. So on the reaction function front, I think they're largely responsible for the easing in financial conditions. Now we sort of get to the growth outlook point. And this is where I would say based on data that we're looking at leading indicators that growth is okay. You know, we're going to be around trend, which actually doesn't meet the Fed threshold for a cut. If David's right and growth is going to all collapse from here, then absolutely, I think the Fed will need to ease. Mm-hmm. I just don't see enough data here that growth is about to fall or that we're heading into a recession. Well, David, there does seem to be increasing confidence that the Fed can engineer a soft landing. You're saying they can't. Uh, I'm trying hard not to laugh. Um, Yeah, the Fed. So tell me exactly how many times the Fed successfully has engineered a soft landing. I think a lot of people reflect on the mid-90s as one example. It's time to put our historian hat on. There's been 13 Fed rate hiking cycles in the post-World War II experience. We had 10 recessions, which, which the Fed never seems to... See until it actually happens. If you go and take a look at the Fed staff forecast from the Green Book, on the month the recession happens, there's never a negative for GDP in the next four quarters. Uh, we have three soft landings, okay? We had one in the mid-60s, we had one in the mid-80s, and one in the mid-90s, when the economy slows but doesn't go in a reverse. Well, in those periods, we were basically in year three of the cycle, not year 10. The unemployment rate was over 6% in those periods, not south of 4%. Uh, and the Fed was not just talking the talk, they were walking the walk. The Fed, on average, cut rates in those soft landings, 250 basis points, and they moved right away. Uh, so I would say, look, history is on our side. Uh, we had 13 Fed rate hiking cycles. The only thing separating the inevitable recession and where we are right now are just the lags between monetary policy and the real economy. Just quickly, what's the significance of 10 years? Why is duration so important when the recovery's been so shallow? Well, the recovery has been so shallow for a variety of reasons, but you have to take a look at where aggregate demand is. Aggregate demand is GDP. Uh, aggregate demand has been very soft, just over 2% growth. But tell me, what's aggregate supply been? Uh, productivity has only started to pick up very recently, if you believe the data, but labor force, the labor force is collapsing. You, you know, how did we get down to 3.6% unemployment? Is because the labor pool is down to where it was in May 2001. So that's aggregate really, demand, aggregate demand, has cool. been, aggregate demand has been weak and aggregate supply has been weak. You know, so the answer yeah. back to you is basically, well, how did well, we get to 3.6% unemployment rate? By the way, 3.6% of the unemployment rate is exactly where we were in okay, December I'm 1969 gonna, uh, and the recession nobody okay, saw began in David, January 1970. Go David, I got to go 
sell we soap. Sell in, we sell in soap this We're selling morning. soap this week. That, that's a great observation by Mr. Rosenberg on the labor pool. I'll have to chart that up. Priya Misra with a swell. We've, we've begged them to stay. And we're, we're, did you see, John, we got through that without being Liverpool, oh, Barcelona we're going to do that in about 20 minutes. Don't worry. Yeah. We've got that all covered. Thrilled to be smart this half hour with two people that respectfully disagree. David Rosenberg of Luskin Chef and Priya Misra, uh, TD Securities, uh, with us right now. David, I want to go to the equity markets. Priya's uh, got bonds covered. We'll do that in a, uh, a moment here. You told us earlier you can't trade here. What do you do if you're a long-term investor? I think that if you're a long-term investor, you have to pay attention to where uh, the starting point is on the multiple. That is a huge determinant of future returns. And if you take a look at the um, at the Cape, uh, at the Schiller Smooth PE, uh, you know, which is still well north of 30, uh, your expected real return in equities for the next decade, the real return adjusted for inflation is close to zero. So it tells me that this era of passive investing Index investing is over. I think that uh, it's going to be more of a market in the public equities market anyways of active management is going to be the way that you'll um, deliver alpha in the portfolios. Uh, and um, at the same time, I would suggest that, um, that uh, in a declining rate environment, uh, you want to be focused on dividend growth, dividend yield, low payout ratios, uh, call it maybe the uh, classic dividend aristocrats okay. index. That will be a good place to be uh, in non-cyclical parts of the market right. in this sort of environment, the okay. rates environment that I'm depicting. Then Priya, within the bond market, and bringing you over to equity, and I don't want you to step on you know the equity people at TD Securities, <sighs> but then how do you ravel, uh, how do you value revenue growth given the persistent low yields and the single-digit actuarial assumption that Mr. Ro Rosenberg alludes to. I mean, the revenue growth of double-digit tech stocks or right. even organic revenue growth of 8%, that's pretty snappy, isn't it? Exactly. But I, I, I think sort of going back to your question, you know, the... the, the the question that that uh, the entire macro community is sort of dealing with is: Did all the dovish central banks extend the cycle, or did they actually signal the end of the cycle? If they've signaled the end of the cycle, even if PE uh, multiples look attractive, well, if the cycle's ending, you don't want to be in any risk assets. I would say then you want to be in ten-year treasuries. If the cycle has been extended, then I completely hear you. I think with low interest rates, risk assets are the way to go. Carry trades are the way to go. If you're in that camp, which is actually where we're in, that there has been an extension of the cycle, not to say that we'll never get a recession, but if the recession is a year out, it's very expensive to be in U.S. Treasuries rather than any of these risk assets. So, I, you know, what, what we're recommending is uh, buy risk assets, also own some front-end treasuries. Because if you're getting three-month T-bills at 2.4%, it's a positive real rate. We haven't had positive real rates in the treasury market for the last 10 years. It's a good place to be in for when you need liquidity. Because we know liquidity is going to be challenged. Uh, there's been so much of this passive investing that when everyone's trying to exit, you can have outsized uh, market moves. So that's when if you've got liquidity, you don't need to sell mm. at, the, at, at that worst possible So you raised an important question, Priya. It's what, what is the incentive to take on duration risk at this point when you can get so much yield pickup at the right. three month on the three month relative to the say ten year thirty year? 
Exactly. Yes, I think uh, term premium, which is sort of this bond market explanation for this compensation for additional duration risk, it's actually back to levels when the Fed has historically done QE. And we have heard from a lot of Fed speakers, they are nowhere close to either cutting rates to zero or doing QE or forward guidance. I think they're telling us that they're at neutral. I don't think they can be preemptive here. I think if growth absolutely uh, collapses here, where we're heading into a recession, then term premium makes sense. If growth remains around trend, I think term premium can rise a little bit. You know, secularly, I'm not sure that it, uh, it can be much higher given where global bond deals are. But yeah. can the 10-year get to 260, 275? So I actually think the curve, the uh, the yield curve can steepen a little bit. David, I'm assuming you take the other side of that trade in the bond market. Uh, you, you know, look, uh, the Fed is the only central bank that's hiked rates nine times this cycle. And when you couple uh, the quantitative tightening, uh, the de facto increase in the shadow Fed funds rate has been 350 basis points. I would submit to you that this was a very significant monetary tightening cycle in the United States. I said before, I'll say it again, that the only thing separating the current uh, happy place the U.S. economy seems to be with a recession are just the lags. Um, you do not come out of a monetary tightening cycle of this magnitude, and the Fed pushed the envelope to see how far well, they could go without it having an impact on growth. And I think we'll start to see more of these impacts, especially with fiscal stimulus fading, we will see more of this in the second half of the year. I'm not living in the here and now. I'm saying that basically by the end of the year, okay. uh, the recession risks are going to turn into reality. David, we've got to go. David Rosenberg, Luskin Chef, thank, thank you, you David. Priya thank Misra, you, Priya. Thank you so much. TD Securities, that's what we love here at Surveillance, a, a collegial difference of opinion, uh, to say the least. A conversation with Admiral Stravitas at the Carlyle Group, and we did speak of the Abraham Lincoln and flotilla moving over to the Arabian Sea. Why don't you bring in our good guest in Tehran? I want to bring in Blimbo's Golnar Montavelli. She joins us from Tehran. Golnar, great to have you with us on the program. Talk to me about this 60-day deadline that has just been set by Rouhani. What is the latest on the ground? Yeah, so um, this morning, President Rouhani uh, made a statement, and it was aired live on on state TV. And this is obviously in response to the latest um, escalations coming from Washington, the latest kind of pressure that's come on come on Iran that that was you know kind of started really last year with Trump and um, withdrawing from the from the nuclear deal. And today, Rouhani said that from today, Iran is going to cease complying to two aspects of the nuclear deal, and that includes exporting excess levels of in, um, enriched uranium overseas and exporting excess levels of, of heavy water. Now, the key thing is that last week, uh, the State Department actually announced new sanctions on Iran's um, nuclear program, which included sanctioning any country which would take those imports of enriched uranium. And that, and, and that statement from the State Department last week also said that it would stop Iran from being able to access any of that heavy water or export any of that ex excess heavy water. So in many ways, Iran is, is actually saying that it's not going to comply to two provisions that were affected by Washington deciding last week to revoke waivers that are directly, um, that directly apply to those two terms within the deal. So I think what's really key right now is to see how 
the Europeans and the remaining parties in the agreement. Those are um, the remaining four members of the UN Security Council, um, all of the EU countries, and that obviously includes China um, and Russia and Germany and France and the UK. What we you know, what we're looking for now is how they're reacting. Germany has so far said that not complying to one part of the deal is not acceptable for them. We have to see whether they're going to react in chorus on that and what that actually means. Um, and obviously, it's going to be interesting to see um, how Washington chooses to interpret this this move by by Iran. Well, let's talk about Europe first, and then we can talk about how Washington chooses to interpret the latest move from Iran. For the Europeans, from the Iranian side, their message is quite clear. We've stood by the JCPOA. We've continued to abide by everything we agreed to directly in the agreement. We want to trade with you. But can the Europeans actually directly respond to this? Are their hands tied? Um, You you know, I think, as you said, the the Iranians are deeply, deeply frustrated. And, um, you know, from what I've heard from European officials and diplomats that I've spoken to over the past month, they all actually see, they take, you know, they have a huge amount of sympathy with Iran's position. And they're mostly, obviously, and we, we, we know this, they're not on the same side as the United States on this. And they want to be able to trade with Iran as much as Iran wants to trade with Europe. But um, to an extent, I think, yes, their hands their hands are tied because they're dealing with, you know, this is the United States, the world's biggest economy. This is, a, you know, so much of this trade is dollar denominated. And Iran cannot officially trade in dollars anymore. It's sanctioned from doing that. Um, so it's it's an extremely challenging task. And I think, you know, what officials keep pressing to the Iranians is that this is taking a long time because we've never, ever done this before. This is the first time anyone's ever tried to do something like this. We've never tried to establish a special purpose vehicle on this level. And we've never tried to do it with this kind of level of hostility from the United States and this level of opposition from the United States, which is, of course, you know, still an, an, an ally to, yeah. to the European Union. So, no, it's it's a huge challenge. And I think what the Iranians have done today, this is more a message to the Europeans to just kind of do everything you can to try and save this, this deal now. Because after that 60-day window that Rouhani announced today, they said that they will consider enriching um, uranium beyond levels that they are currently allowed to. But at the moment, they're actually not hitting those maximum levels anyway. They're actually kind of, you know, they're, they've got room themselves. Well, Ghana, let's talk about the, the, the Washington the response the to all of this. In fact, not mm-hmm. the response, the Washington approach to all of this. John Bolton, mm-hmm. the National Security Advisor to the President, has said quite recently there is a clear and unmistakable warning that he wants to send to the Iranian regime. How are the Iranians taking that right now, the words of John Bolton? Yeah, I think they, you know, I think, um, I, I think obviously there's a, there's a huge level of kind of d- disappointment. And, and I'd, I'd just say kind of like sadness at the way the fate of the nuclear deal, you know, how it's kind of, you know, the way that things have deteriorated, not just since last year, but actually since President Trump was was. Elected, and I think Iranians, from the ones that I speak to anyway, and these are largely yeah. working people, middle class people, it's kind of this feeling of like, you know, where does, you know, I mean, I don't want to sound um, out of out of turn, but this kind of sense that there are 
crazy people running things in the White House that are kind of quite determined well, to to start a conflict with 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 Iran. And that's not to say that they don't often feel that there are crazy people running their own country. But I think the sense is that they mm-hmm. voted for the you know right. Rouhani was elected by by quite you know a high mar- you know a wide margin twice. And based on this promise of a nuclear deal to help the economy. And now they, they, they're kind of baffled by the level and the, the ambition and that appetite for sabotage in Washington. I think, you know, and it plays into this history of, of kind of feeling that, you know, conspiracy theories that the United States just wants to kind of upend, um, you know, Iranian popular oh. politics and democratic processes. It plays into those to those, um, to those, those, those mm-hmm. fears and feelings well, as well. We've got to leave it there. A report from Tehran. Gulnar Montavali with us uh, uh, of Bloomberg News and her wonderful coverage that we've seen uh, from uh, Persia. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.